Hi everyone and welcome to ABC's of Anesthesia and again there's another special episode because I'm doing a Viva here for podcast and the YouTube channel uh, with Shehan. Um, so welcome Shehan, uh, thanks very much for coming along and uh, getting examined. How are you feeling? Thanks Larry, uh, thanks for having me. Um, uh, feeling uh, like I'm getting there, some good days and bad days but uh, hopefully not long to go. Yeah, so, that's what, yeah. It, it's only a few weeks to go now isn't it? Yeah, like three weeks or maybe less. Yeah, okay. Hey, so how's your exam prep been? Uh, I'm getting Vivas uh, quite regularly. Um, and uh, after attending your boot camp, I've uh, uh, done some changes to my technique, which I think helped quite a lot. Oh, excellent. Uh, so I think each Viva, I'm trying to improve uh, sort of the technical aspect of things. That's my, uh, what my focus is on. Yeah, excellent. Is there any... Um... I used to ask, uh, we used to do this kind of performance tip thing in our part one podcast. Is there anything that you think really helped you with your study um, or, you know, for this exam in general? Uh, in general, I think um, like having the sort of homework done in terms of theory earlier for the written. And then now I don't have to sort of focus a lot about studying uh, and I can focus more about like technique that helped yeah. uh, in, in terms of resources uh, I found your bootcamp was very very good uh, and I oh, thanks. I'm glad that I got to do it early rather than late so I sort of got a hang of things as to how I could sort of build up um, yeah. and uh, there were a few other sort of resources but mostly it's just the feedback I get on each Viva that helps yeah no, fair enough um, hey, so why don't we get started? So again, what I'm going to do, I'll present a scenario. I'll just uh, put it into the chat for you, but then I'll yeah. mention it as well on the screen for YouTube. So there's the uh, there's this clinical situation. And the question is, how would you further assess this patient? I'll just put that there. Let's take two minutes. And at the end of two minutes, I might actually ask you what stuff you wrote down. Uh, so for the audience, um, it's a 68-year-old male who presents to pre-admission clinic in preparation for a right upper lobe lobectomy for primary lung carcinoma. His surgery date is two weeks from today. Now, his past history is notable for being an ex-smoker, 50 years pack history, COPD, hypertension, ischemic heart disease. So he's had some intervention, like a stent placed in the left circumflex back in, let's say, six years ago, and also hypercholesterolemia. So how would you assess this patient is a question. So take two minutes and I'll, yeah, we'll chat about what you've written down in a couple of minutes. Okay, Shahan, um, what did you write down in that two minutes? So I have a gentleman presenting for a high risk procedure uh, and he's got multiple uh, significant comorbidities. In my assessment, I would base on uh, history examination and investigations. Um, in, uh, with regards to his respiratory function, uh, I would see what his respiratory uh, status is, whether he's got any oxygen requirement and whether he's on oxygen at home. With regards to his COPD, whether he's had any previous ISO uh, admissions, any uh, bullet uh, in his lungs, and whether he's got any uh, follow-up established with a respiratory physician, and whether he's got any features of copalmonale. Uh, with regard to his cardiac issues, uh, I would assess he's got any his, uh, features of left and or right heart failure, uh, including uh, his NYHA class 
and whether he's on any uh, anticoagulation for uh, following his stents. Uh, with regard to his medications, I would assess uh, uh, his, uh, his uh, bronchodilators and other puffers if he's on, uh, his antiplatelets and other medications, which needs to be optimized. With regards to his malignancy, I would assess uh, what sort of uh, grade the malignancy is, whether there is any evidence of metastasis. In my examination, I would focus on his vitals, including saturations on rumia, uh, blood pressure and heart rate, uh, and his weight. And I would further proceed to investigations, including basic blood tests, uh, uh, coagulation profile, uh, lung function tests, and a transthoracic echo if he hasn't had one recently. What ex so you mentioned a few things that you wanted to get. Um, did you want to know about the exercise tolerance of this patient? Uh, yes. So uh, with uh, regards to both his cardiorespiratory issues, uh, I would focus on his exercise tolerance. Um, assess his, uh, like I said, his NYHA sort of class of symptoms if he's got any heart failure. Um, yep. So that would be a main uh, focus of my assessment. Sounds good. Uh, any other blood tests besides the one you, ones you mentioned? So I mentioned full blood count, UCs, uh, and quags. Um, I would make sure that he's got a group and hold and a cross match ready as well. Excellent. Um, yeah. Uh, any anything? Is, uh, you mentioned a few things with assessing of the of the cancer. Just mention those things again. Um, so what sort of stage uh, cancer it is, uh, what treatment he's received so far, and whether the intention is curative or palliative um, would be the main. Yeah, sounds good. Now, I'm just going to sh show you some lung function tests. Let's see, I'll just share the screen. Um, he's got um, FEC of 76%, which is... Uh, uh, which is normal. Uh, however, his FEV1 is quite low. Mm -hmm. And if his FEV1 FEC ratio is uh, significantly low as well. So he's got severe, uh, moderate to severe obstructive lung disease. Um, and he's got a low uh, carbon monoxide diffusion capacity, indicating uh, a diffusion limitation as well. Anything else you want to comment on? Uh, he hasn't got much bronchodilator responsiveness. Yeah, great. What does that tell which, you? Which is in favor of COPD rather than asthma. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, good. So just, um, so that, that was a good assessment. So, you know, first of all, you've outlined your framework, history, examination, investigation. And I like that you just, you know, you just went through the usual things and you made some predictions as well. So, you, you know, you're... you're I, I, we hear a lot of this word. I remember back when I was studying for this exam, one of the examiners loved asking about you know, the assessment would be essentially assessing the severity and stability of the, of the disease processes involved or the diagnosis involved. And you were saying things like, you know, COPD, uh, are they on home oxygen? What are their vital signs? Um, have they been admitted to ICU or hospitalizations? Um, and so I felt like you were getting, giving me an indication of uh, that you wanted to know how severe each of these conditions were and you were going through them systematically. You also made some predictions and I really like that. So, you know, I'd ask medications, about medications, but you didn't just say medications. You said, I would want to know about the puffer use uh, and any antiplatelet medications, which would be the most relevant for the surgery. What's, what's another thing you might expect a severe COPD patient to be on that might be pertinent? Um, home oxygen. Um, yep, absolutely. Anything else medication wise? 
apart from medications point of view. Um, so they could be on oral steroids. Absolutely. Um, so that, that which obviously might need stress dosing if needed. Yeah, absolutely good. Now, the one thing I, I think about, you know, when you do this assessment, what is this whole assessment in the thoracic anesthesia context heading you towards? I think the, the assessment is fo- uh, focused on the respiratory function. And um, so, uh, and it would lead to um, uh, trying to guess what sort of uh, respiratory issues this patient's going to get in the perioperative period. Yes. Uh, I think that's the main focus. And, and why is that? This sounds like an obvious question, but why in this case is post-op respiratory issues such a big deal? Um, so this patient might end up in an intensive care unit intubated postoperatively in the sort of worst case scenario. So that should be addressed prior to going ahead with the surgery, especially given that he's got a, a lung cancer. Yeah, um, and whether he's a candidate for that, um, and that sort of discussion should be uh, had with the patient prior to proceeding. Great. Do you know any models of prediction of, you know, this patient having a problematic post-operative dyspnea or needing ventilation post-operatively? So this patient will require one lung ventilation. So there are not, there aren't uh, many established models for one lung ventilation. However, for single lung, uh, like uh, two lung ventilation, there are uh, predictive uh, uh, values, uh, in, including uh, actually oxygenation, uh, so not, not worrying about not worrying about one lung ventilation. Uh, do, do you know uh, any kind of prediction or flow charts by the uh, you know thoracic societies about post-operative dyspnea prediction? Uh, I'm not uh, aware. Uh, that, that's all right. So, as part of your pre-anesthetic assessment, you want to uh, determine the p- predicted post-operative FEV1 and the predict- the predicted post-operative DLCO. You know, abbreviated as PPO. FEV1 and PPO DLCO. Um, what are these and how would you measure them? Predicted FEV1 uh, would be the, the uh, forced expiratory volume in the first uh, per second. Uh, so you would use a spirometry to, to measure that. Yep. And so uh, you've already got a value for that. So let's say your, you know, your FEV1 over FVC is 45%. Uh, what's your predicted post-operative value? How do you calculate that? Um, it it will be uh, much lower than the that level, but I'm not sure of any formula that uh, to calculate it. Okay, good, good. So this is one of those you know once you know it, you know it. Okay, so predicted post-operative is your pre-operative value multi- multiplied by with a remainder of the lung that exists. So if you imagine you've got you know the the full lung is 19 segments. If you take away the right upper lobe that's got three segments. You only have 16 segments left. So now you've got a fraction. So your PPO FEV1 is 16 over 19 multiplied by your pre-op value, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when you hear that PPO DLCO, PPO FEV1, that's the kind of value you're looking at. So it's not that much less. So say it's, you know, 40 something percent uh, we have here, 43% for DLCO, 45% for FEV1. If you take 16 over 19 multiplied by that, you you roughly get around 36% is your PPO FEV1 and PPO uh, DLCO. Uh, now, what, uh, now, based on these lung function tests, 
is it is there anything else you need to know to pr predict how high risk uh, this patient is of postoperative dyspnea? His uh, roomy oxygen saturations and uh, partial pressure of oxygen uh, on roomy. Um, that might be. Yep. Keep going. Anything else? In terms of his um, rest of the lung, whether there's any um, rest of the lung is diseased, whether uh, there's any history of like pneumonia or any uh, scarring involved in the rest of the lung. Yep. Uh, and from a symptomatic or functional point of view, what his uh, respiratory symptoms are. And I think other other important thing is if he's got a history of copalmonale and pulmonary hypertension, which would also indicate uh, degree of dyspnea postoperatively. Okay. Hey, I'm going to show you these flow charts. Have you seen these flow charts before? I'm uh, not. I'm not familiar with this one. Uh, that's, that's right. So this is. Uh, I'm sure there's a many different kind of risk stratification indices out there. I think it's important to have one of the, one of them in mind. So one of these is the British, and one of these is the American Thoracic Society guidelines. Um, th this may have been, you know, uh, this may have been modified or improved from si since when this was. But essentially, my risk assessment for postoperative dyspnea, you'd pretty much have a spirometry and DLC for everyone. So if they're, according to this guideline, if their PPO is you know, greater than 40%, then it's low risk. So this one's less than 40%, which goes under this chart here. And so then I always need some kind of functional test. So if the shuttle walk or six minute walk test, if that is good, then no need for cardiopulmonary, ex cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Uh, then you'd say that they're straight to moderate risk. But if the function was really poor, you'd do CPET. And then if you, again, you get VO2 max less than 15, then you go to high risk as well. So I, I, personally, I'll just memorize one of these charts, just understand that you need spirometry, maybe functional testing, maybe CPX or CPET testing. And that way you can stratify the risk of each of these. Right. Yeah, good, good. And this is purely for respiratory- This is very specific. Lung resections. Lung resection, okay. Yeah, good, good. So, so, in, so, it, it, you know, when I asked that question about your assessment, I think your assessment was really good because you're tackling a lot of the, you know, high points. You're getting through a lot of the commentary of what you want, but then the next step would be to go, look, I am likely to, we're going to resect the lung. This patient is at risk of post-operative dyspnea or ventilation in ICU. How would I do that? I'd use a functional test. I'll use CPEX. I use spirometry. So, in the assessment, you're already thinking about that. So now you know. Um, and that's, you know, that's where yeah. you want to go with this. So let's keep going. What options do you have for airway, for the airway for this? Um, let's say it's just a thoracotomy, not a video assisted, but just thoracotomy. So the main uh, options are uh, using a double lumen tube or uh, using a single lumen tube with a bronchial blocker. Would, yeah, other, it would be my two main any options. Any other options? In an emergency scenario, I would use a single lumen tube in endobronchially, but it's, I wouldn't use that in a elective Sounds scenario. Uh, so your preference is double human tube for this? Yes. Yeah, great. Um, you choose a double human tube. How do you size it for this man? Uh, so based on his height. Um, so do I have a height for yeah, this let's patient? Say this patient is 170 centimeters and 80 kilos. For a 170 centimeter male, I would use a size 39 double human tube. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, how tall, sorry, for 100. So for, for a male patient, 
yes. uh, between 160 to 170 centimeters. Yep. I would use a size 37, uh, sorry, 39 tube. Yep. Uh, if they're more than 170 centimeters, I would use a 41 tube. Excellent. Uh, I, I agree with you there. And um, would you use a left or a right? It's a right, the right thoracotomy. Um, so, so this is a right upper lobectomy. So I would use a left uh, double lumen tube. Excellent. Now let's say we're doing a left-sided thoracotomy. Uh, what are the advantages? Like, would you still use a left or would you use a right for a left-sided thoracotomy? I would still use a left-sided uh, double lumen tube, but it also depends on which level the thoracotomy involves. Uh, if it involves a main bronchus, uh, and in which case I would have to use a right-sided double lumen tube. What are the problems? But the left-sided double lumen. What are the problems? What are the problems with a right-sided double? Right, right-sided. So it's uh, quite uh, technically quite hard to place uh, because the right uh, upper lobe bronchus uh, has a quite acute angle. So you need to place the Murphy's eye uh, right at the the division of the bronchus, um, and it's more prone to disposition uh, displacement, especially when you break the table. Uh, to uh, gain access uh, for the track. That's good. So I agree with you that the the right upper lobe turnoff, that is the problem. Um, but I reckon it's because of the distance rather than the acuteness of the turnoff. So I don't care too much about the acuteness, but how far is that turnoff from the main bronchus? It's very short. Uh, it's very soon after the main bronchus, the, the right upper lobe bronchial yeah. uh, takes off. So it's, it's a very short distance. Roughly how much do you reckon? Uh, about one centimeter. Or... I've got around two, two and a half centimeters. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it's short. Uh, how about the left upper lobe? Where's that? How far is that turn off? Um, it's much longer than that. I'm not exactly sure how far, but uh, I believe it's around three, four centimeters. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got about five centimeters here. Okay. Now, what are the advantages of the double human tube and what are the disadvantages? So the advantages of double lumen tube are um, they provide a reliable uh, sort of lung isolation uh, and you can use it to prevent lung contamination, especially if there's superior disease. Um, and uh, also it's less prone to dis or malposition compared to bronchial blockers and technically much easier to advance or insert. Disadvantages include uh, they, are, they carry a higher risk of uh, barotrauma and mucosal trauma, uh, and they uh, can cause intraoperative uh, uh, hypoxia, which can be tr uh, difficult to treat, especially with lung isolation. What, what would you say? Uh, the other disadvantages are... Well, Sorry, what is the delay? No, that's right. There's a delay on the thing. Um, why would you say it's a, it's more difficult to treat hypoxemia with a bron uh, with a double lumen tube versus a bronchial blocker? What dif difficulty? Yeah, why would you say it's di more difficult to treat hypoxemia with a double lumen tube? With a double lumen tube uh, compared to bronchial blocker. Um... My, my thoughts are because you've got ability to ventilate each lung independently, you might have an easier time with ventilation and you can apply CPAP to you know, the, you know, the independent lung or the operative lung. 
but no, that was good. Yeah. So I agree. It's the gold standard for lung in, uh, isolation. You can get rapid inflation or deflation of either lung. So I find that's really useful. You can also suction, use a fiber optic down either lumen as well. Each, each one can be ventilated separately. CPAP can be applied. So obviously a lot of, you know, a lot of really good advantages. And yeah, I agree. I've, I've placed a few bronchial blockers and it, it's easy enough to do, but it feels far more easy to displace. And it's just a lot trickier. Have, have you done many uh, bronchial blockers? Not many. I've done one or two. Oh yeah. Which, which one have you used? Do you remember the name of it? Uh, the, the Cohen one, the one yeah. with the loop. Oh yeah, yeah, and there's the the. Uh, uh, sorry, aunt, aunt. Uh, yeah, I found aunt, the cone ones easier because you just have to rotate, whereas you don't have to yeah. worry about the loop. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's more difficult to insert the, the double intrudes. Bulky causes trauma. Um, Maybe very difficult in a difficult airway. Uh, and also, yeah, in younger children, you know, in the pediatric cases, it's just not possible. Um, so just describe to me how do you, how do you place uh, a double lumen tube if you were to step me through the process. Um, so um, preparation is as per standard intubation. On top of that, for the double lumen tube, uh, I would preferably use a video laryngoscope, uh, which allows better visualization. One, and I would apply good lubrication and a stylet. Once the tracheal, uh, the bronchial cuff is through the, the vocal cords, I would rotate the tube 90 degrees anticlockwise and then proceed the tube until I feel resistance. Uh, uh, before that, before proceeding, I would uh, make sure I take the stylet off. Yeah. Uh, then uh, after that, I would proceed to uh, um, making sure the placement is correct. So initially by looking at the ETCO2 trace, I would in then inflate the tracheal cuff and then listen for bilateral air entry. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would clamp the tracheal limb uh, and uh, inflate the bronchial cloth and ventilate through it, and then uh, look for unilateral air entry. Uh, and then I would reattach. I just want to clarify, as you inflate the bronchial cuff, do you have a method of inflating it? Um, so I usually uh, add one to three mils uh, or as per manufacturer's guidelines. Yep. Um, and then I would check the, the pressures. Uh, good. I'm glad you said check the pressure. So, you know, I'd always use a manometer for these cases, but what, what um, the system that I've been taught and, you know, that we do at our hospital is I open, I, I'm glad you said you inflate the tracheal cuff, you get ventilation, you've checked all of that. So you, you, you got a position of safety. I then clamp the tracheal lumen. As you said, I open the tracheal lumen. So now I can have a leak. I gradually give 0.5 mils into the bronchial cuff 4.5 mils at a time until I hear no leak from that tracheal lumen. And that way I'm stepwise doing it. Uh, after you've done that, what else do you do? Um, so after I've uh, confirmed the position, uh, then I would do a, a bronchoscope through the tracheal lumen and then uh, look for the blue uh, bronchial cuff just in the, the left main bronchus. Uh, and it, that it makes sure that it's not uh, herniating into the tracheal. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, just moving on now, what, what do you plan for analgesia for this patient post-operatively? I would request surgeons to uh, put in a, so I would use a multimodal analgesia for this patient. Uh, I would uh, further assess, uh, take a pain history and assess his pain, but as a general uh, uh, method, I would request the surgeons to insert a wound catheter for this patient. Uh, and on top of that, I would give this patient a fentanyl uh, PCA 
uh, and uh, regular paracetamol. Uh, I would probably avoid NSAIDs in this uh, age group. Um, if the, pay, the surgeons are not happy to put in a wound catheter, then I would consider uh, an erector spinae a catheter. Yeah, sounds good. Um, what kind of wound catheter did you mean? Where, where is the catheter that the surgeons would place? Uh, so it's an intercostal, uh, intercostal nerve catheter. Okay. We usually use an extra pleural catheter, kind of covers a larger zone than the intercostal catheter, I'd say. But if that's what okay. you guys use, that, that sounds reasonable. Would you ever use a paravertebral uh, catheter for this if the surgeons weren't doing their thing? Um, so uh, my first choice would be uh, um, an erector spinae uh, catheter uh, compared to a paravertebral catheter because that's the more familiar, the technique that I'm more familiar with. And uh, it's also shown to be non-inferior and less sort of neuraxial side effects. Sounds good. Um, back when I was training, we didn't have rectospinal catheters. No one had really done that technique. So it was always paraveritals, but yeah, I, I accept that. That's, that's good. Um, okay, good. <coughs> now, continuing on with the case, as you're, doing, as you're doing the case, the surgeons are well into their dissection and you notice that the oxygen saturations decrease down to say 90, say 88%. What do you do? Um, so, this can be expected with the one lung ventilation. However, I'll be uh, with an 88% of oxygen saturation, I'll be uh, quite concerned. I would immediately attend to the patient, uh, scan the monitor, alert the surgeons that the sets have dropped, uh, get my anesthetic assistant to help me as well. Mm -hmm. um, my first uh, priority is to improve the oxygenation. So I would increase the flows and increase the saturate of FIO to 100%. And then I would scan from the patient and back to the ventilator to look for any, uh, to identify any cause. Uh, after these temporizing measures, I would perform a, a bronchoscope through the, the tracheal lumen. So differentials at this stage are um, a displaced uh, uh, double lumen tube, um, atelectasis uh, or a collapse of the lung causing hypoxia due to uh, the VQ mismatch. Uh, potential serious less likely causes are pneumothorax, which I would like to exclude, or bronchospasm in a COPD patient. Now, interestingly, you went straight to the bronchoscope. Why did you do that? Is there any other things you could do before you went to the bronchoscope? Uh, so prior to that, I would listen to the lungs uh, and listen for any bronchospasm uh, and the artery. Good. Hey, so I actually really like your format there. I feel like you got through a lot of stuff pretty quickly. Um, so you said, look, I'd scan the surgeon patient monitors, you, you know, you're checking all the safety features. You've, t you know, you want to prioritize oxygenation again, obviously a great thing to say, and you tell the surgeon what's happening and you've noticed, you know, you're getting all your assistance and your help. I like that your way was systematic oxygen up flows up. Uh, and then uh, it was curious that you went straight to a bron bronchoscope because I think what you would actually do in practice is flip to the bag and ventilate by hand. And that would give you a lot of indication of compliance and what's going on. And I often auscultate, auscultate straight away. Why would I really want to auscultate this patient uh, aside from other thoracic patients? So for this patient to uh, listen for any bronchospasm, given that he's got COPD. Excellent. Also, also to listen for an air entry to look for a pneumothorax.
Yeah, good. So, so again, is that a high risk of absolutely right? So in this patient, maybe they had bullous lung disease. Maybe I wasn't sure of it. Maybe I used high pressures because you know, I'd, I'd, I'd set the ventilator wrong and I was ventilating one lung with super high volumes or high pressures or whatever it was. So yeah, I, I'd check all those things. Let's say you hear quite a bit of wheeze and you hear sputum. Actually, one more point. So I remember one of my, one of my bosses telling me back in the day, whenever you get hypoxemia in a case that's like one lung ventilation, this is all the causes of hypoxemia normally and it's the core and the one lung ventilation causes. So you don't forget your system. So that's why your system was, was good. Just add on those extra things, but I'm thinking about all of those causes as well. So let's say now you get to, you hear a lot of wheeze, you hear a lot of sputum sounds. So noisy lung, uh, not noisy, noisy dependent lung. What do you do? So um, um, I would again, be quite concerned about this patient. Uh, I would commence on um, salbutamol uh, meter dose inhaler via the, through the circuit. Uh, and give 12 puffs uh, and continue to do that until I get an improvement. Uh, and also I would give uh, some atrovent uh, fund mics uh, as well. Um, I'll let the surgeons about this. And uh, the next priority is to suction the sputum plugging. Fantastic. Um, so you do those steps, uh, you manage to clear most of the secretions out. Now, and, and the wee sounds a lot better. So you've taken care of that problem. Uh, the sats are still pretty low. They say, still hovering it. They, they fell to say 70%, but with your maneuvers, you've now brought it back up to say 89, 90%, uh, but you're still a bit concerned for this patient. How else could you improve the oxygenation for one lung ventilation? Um, so in order to improve the oxygenation, uh, my next step would be to increase the peep uh, of the ventilated lung. Um, so for that, uh, I would optimize the peep to five to 10 centimeters of water. Bearing in mind, uh, I don't want to cause any barotrauma to this patient. Um, and uh, the next step following that would be to apply CPAP to the, the uh, non-ventilated lung. So for that, I would use a CPAP uh, application device uh, and then dial my CPAP uh, until I get a, a reasonable response with the saturations. And what, what is the device you could use for CPAP? Uh, I don't know the exact name for it, but uh, it's a, a device where you can uh, change your CPAP settings uh, that, good. that attaches. Have, have a look at, um, just, just so you see, even your, your next thoracic case, uh, have a look at this. It's called, it's just the, the, the trade name is Mallinckrodt, you know, that, that company Mallinckrodt. And it's like this little ventilating bag with a dial. So you turn it up to, I think, five liters per minute on the outlet. And you vary that dial depending on the pressure pressure you want. But there's a thought that you could probably even use the Liddell bag with a peep valve. Just put oxygen in, have that attached to one of the lumens. Um, I'm not, I haven't done that before. Potentially could work. Uh, so you, yeah, that's right. You increase your FiO2, your flows. Uh, you've sorted out the other cause of hypoxemia. You applied peep to that lung, CPAP to the top lung. The surgeons don't want the CPAP to the top lung. It's affecting their surgical conditions. What else can you do? Um, the next step would be to clamp uh, the upper lobe uh, bronchial artery. Uh, the unhappy with uh, that, not able to do that. What else? So then uh, the next step would be to resume intermittent to lung ventilation. Sounds good. So as, as it happens, it's a very difficult dissection. The cancer is quite extensive in the lobe. It's very, very hard to dissect. Um, and they're not able to... Uh, you, 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 the, the surgeons aren't able to continue with the dissection with you constantly reinflating that lung. 
Uh, are you okay with 90% in this patient? Or well, sets of 89, 90%? Yes. Uh, uh, as, especially given that he's uh, a patient with COPD. Uh, and uh, anyway, for these type of cases, I'm happy to accept a um, level of sets of 88 to 90%. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, as you continue with the case, suddenly the surgeon looks pretty distressed. It looks like um, there's quite a bit of blood in the sucker. Uh, and um, what, what's happening now is that the blood pressure is requiring far more aramine or metaraminol. So supposedly now you're on 10 milligrams an hour of aramine uh, and the patient's gone from a heart rate of 80 to a heart rate of 110. What do you do? So this is quite concerning, uh, potentially a major uh, bleed uh, in the making. Um, so I would uh, call for help uh, in this situation. Um, as a temporizing measure, I would give them a bolus of crystalloids, 500 mils. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would, uh, in this, uh, I would clarify with the surgeons what's exactly going on, uh, what surgeon, sort of vessel. The surgeon um, looks quite stressed. It looks, they, they've told you that they've nicked a vessel. There's quite a lot of blood loss occurring and they're trying to get control of the situation. So uh, in this situation, I would activate the M MTP. Uh, the priority is to get uh, products as well as blood into this patient. Uh, call for help and make sure that I've got two large bowl cannulas. Uh, I've already got the arterial line. Uh, I would use that to use a blood gas as well. Uh, I would use two warming coils to give my products and warm the patient and optimize uh, other adjuncts, uh, including calcium, the pH, um, and uh, the temperature, uh, and I would make sure I give some TXA as well as other products and use my uh, blood gases and coagulation assays. And if I have a, a rotum, I would uh, use that to further guide my uh, blood transfusion. Anything else you want? Um, so in terms of uh, access, uh, uh, so IV access, uh, I would convert one of the peripheral lines uh, into a, a rapid infuser line. Um, if, if available, uh, if cell salvage can be arranged in, a, in an urgency, uh, I would have that arranged, but I don't think that would be uh, possible in an urgent situation. Well, let's say you're in, um, you're in a big hospital, would, then, they're able to give you the cell saver in 15 minutes. You're very fortunate. Okay. Okay, so in that case, I would arrange that as well. Anything else? Um, and then I would discuss with the surgeons whether to uh, uh, sort of uh, in terms of surgical approach. Um, um, so th this is done thoracoscopically, or is it open? On a op open. Yeah, so uh, I would continue with uh, a um, a product resuscitation. Um, that sounds good. Do you, and would, you use, it, would you use a, get a level one as well? Um, sorry, what was that? Uh, oh, would you get a level one as well for your infusions? The rapid infusion? Um, yes, I would. Yeah. Um, okay. As the surgeons are dissecting, there's quite a torrential bleeding and they ask you to drop the blood pressure uh, because they, they need to be able to see the arteries and vessels to clamp it. What do you say? Um, so uh, in response to that, uh, it depends on what my current uh, hemodynamic status is. Um, so I would uh, allow say, some. Let's say your blood pressure is running at 100, heart rate 120, and you're using about 10 milligrams uh, an hour of um, aramine. 
So in, in that case, I would allow some degree of uh, um, hypotension as long as uh, I'm happy that the organ, an organ perfusion is maintained. So I'll be looking at the ECG trace yeah. um, and uh, I would further uh, bring down the aramine infusion, uh, but I would keep going with the blood products. Okay. What number, what blood pressure, what systolic blood pressure do you drop this patient to, to help the surgeons? So this patient has a history of hypertension, so his baseline must be uh, high. Uh, I would try to keep it within 20% of its baseline, but for a temporary period, as long as I don't see any ischemic changes, I'm happy with uh, a blood pressure of uh, around uh, 90 systolic. Okay. Let's say the patient was hypertensive at 160, running 10 milligrams an hour of aramine, your blood pressure is 100, and the surgeons actually want blood pressure lower, about 70 or 60 temporarily. What do you do? Uh, for a temporary period of time, uh, in, in order to improve uh, sort of uh, uh, bleeding control, uh, he must, to achieve hemostasis, I would allow blood pressure to drop uh, for okay. a very sort of short period of time. So that, that, how does that feel? That, that feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It, it does, yeah. <laughs> Quite uncomfortable. This is one of those situations where, you know, it obviously feels wrong to do it, but I, I think most of us would agree. And again, obviously ask a panel of your supervisors and your consultants what they would do in this situation, because I suspect that most of us, knowing that this is a bad situation, if the surgeon needs it for control, we would facilitate it. So I, I think you got to the right place. I, I often think you can, pro because this exam is also time limited, I feel that you could get to certain answers quicker. So, you know, you might say, look, this is obviously not ideal for perfusion, but, you know, for the, for the surgeon to be able to control this bleeding, to remedy this situation, I'll be happy to temporarily drop this blood pressure, obviously looking at end organ perfusion. You know, when, when, when we say the terms end organ perfusion, like what, what can you really tell? Like, you know, blood pressure drops at 15. Yeah. yeah, not much. You're not going to see these ECG changes immediately. I mean, if you do great, but I've never seen any, really significant ST changes or anything. Uh, so we won't know until afterwards that there's been a problem, but we have to sort this problem out now. Uh, I, I, I like that you gave me a lot of information for that. So, you know, you started by, you know, getting help, yeah. rapid access, you know, multi, you know, two IV access, you've already got the art line, you get products, you activate the mashless transfusion protocol and you offered me aims, you know, you're also keeping the patient warm, pH normal, calcium, and doing regular ABGs, Rotem, Coags, because you really need to see how, how you're going. Um, the one extra thing, as I mentioned, you know, I'd, I'd ask for the cell, you know, you never know, even in our hospital where cell saver is not on site, you can still get the staff in the perfusionist and the cell saver person in, in half an hour, but you can collect the blood immediately. So there's always a way, even though it might not be on site. Uh, and I always mention the um, level one or rapid infusion device. Okay, that's that's good. Now, good. Let's let's say this patient, the blood pressure keeps blood pressure keeps dropping in spite of what you're what you're giving. You're just not able to get enough products. The blood pressure now falls to forty. What do you do? Um. So um, um, I'm. I'm very worried about this patient now. Uh, I would, uh, if I don't have enough help, I would call a med call and get more people in. Yep. Um, so the priority is to get in uh, more products. Mm -hmm. I would insert a right IJ sheet uh, mm -hmm. to uh, give the products much faster yep. um, and also look for other causes of his hypotension, um, potentially a, a tension pneumothorax or any um, sort of electrolyte abnormalities, so arrhythmias. That's all good. Uh, but my main concern. You're still losing a lot of volume. Blood pressure is 30 on your outline. 
this is rapidly escalating into an ALS uh, scenario. So I would uh, prepare for an ALS uh, situation. I would have my team uh, ready and allocated with allocated roles, mm-hmm. have my adrenaline and defibrillator uh, in the room on the patient. Uh, and then uh, uh, while I continue to resuscitate from volume point of view, I would prepare for uh, uh, LS. Um, in this situation, I, I realized the patient's on lateral position. So I would get the bed in and uh, uh, get ready to uh, um, turn him over supine as well. Okay. So let's say the patient is in the surgical position, which is left lateral. Your blood pressure is 30. The SATS trace isn't reading because the blood pressure is so low. You've got your end tidal is reading roughly 15 millimeters mercury, 15 to 20. Uh, your heart rate is still sinus tacky at 150. Uh, you've given more, more and more aramine, more aramine. Tell me exactly what you do now. So this is uh, quite a complicated situation because the surgeons need to uh, uh, get on top of the bleeding, but uh, I need to commence CPR on this patient. Initially, I would. Uh, start CPR on the lateral position uh, uh, and see if they give the optimal sort of time for the surgeons to clamp a main blood vessel such as a bronchial artery. But if they're unable to do that, I would have to uh, get the patient supine and give them uh, effective CPR. Now, what, what's the cause of this arrest? Uh, it's hypovolemic shock. Yeah. What's the solution for the hypovolemic shock? Stop the bleeding. Yeah. So w- when you say do CPR and turn supine, d- does, it, does it feel a bit odd? It does. It does, doesn't it? Okay. So here's, yeah. I'm just, I'm just putting it in because you're, you're doing well. I'm just giving you this very tricky scenario. And what we're going to discuss here is very going to be very contentious. Um, so w- w- what are your thoughts? I've, I've, I've now talked, I've now mentioned the elephant in the room that this is a horrible yeah. situation because the solution of ALS may impede the ultimate solution stopping yeah. hypervolemic shock. What do you think? What are you, what are you going to do? I think uh, the main, uh, I mean, the ALS will not be effective if the patient continues to bleed. If, if the, the surgeons are able to put a clamp on a major vessel and temporize the bleeding, then I'm happy to uh, uh, turn the patient. But the priority here is to stop the bleeding. So if, if the patients, uh, if the surgeons haven't, gained hemostasis, I would continue CPR on the lateral position. Yeah. So I'll, I'm just going to tell you my thoughts. And again, this is, this is opinion. This is a horrible situation. I've just got to give so many disclaimers and caveats because this is such a complicated situation that no one needs to do what we talk about right now. But the, uh, the, the problem here is when we read the ALS guidelines, it says the patient is arrested. You don't feel a pulse. You start chest compressions, give adrenaline if it's a if it's um, PEA, and then continue two rounds defib, etc. Now, I, I think that this is going to be one of the toughest situations because right now it's not ALS for everybody. It's a thing that's happening in theater, and so I, I, I would almost I would, I would almost say that chest compressions that impede the surgeon is the wrong thing, and that's very controversial for me to say. But I would do exactly a lot of the things what you do. The solution here is the surgical clamping of vessels. So I'd have a very frank discussion and say, look, the patient's arrested. There's no output or minimal output. You need to do whatever it takes, whether it's increase the size of the cut, find that vessel and clamp it immediately. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're going to lose this patient. 
Um, and I've had conversations like that, not in this situation, but where the surgeon's done something temporary, we've got back volume, like they've paused, you know, clamped, got back volume, got back resuscitation, got back the blood pressure, and then have another go at it. So this is super difficult. I, I, I would hate to be in this particular situation, but I feel like this is a very nuanced case and I'm throwing you in the deep end with this one. Uh, just to say that, you, I, let's say you get this in the exam. I feel like this is one of the things where it might feel like the right thing to say in the exam, but it would be worthwhile going, this is really difficult because ALS for the ALS guidelines are for every situation. And this is very specific. I feel like chest compressions would impede in the solution. So I would have this discussion that we would put the DFib pads on, you know, shock the patient if they go into VF or VT. Um, do, but we have to resuscitate, give adrenaline, but we wouldn't be able to do CPR or turn supine we'd have to get the surgeon to fix this solution because chest compressions are not going to fix it. It's just going to push more blood out and keep the patient alive for another couple of minutes. What do you, what do you yeah. think of that? Does that sound reasonable? No, I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, um, it's, yeah, it's going to be futile if the bleeding just continues to happen. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just so so hard to say that. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. You give, and so it, maybe, arrest, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe the take home message is I, you know, I definitely don't want to tell you what to do in this business. Look, I, I would, you know, I think this would be such a difficult situation, but I know that CPR for me doesn't make sense in this particular situation. So hopefully the language yeah. you want to use is things like that. I, I realize that ALS tells me to do this, but this is different. Yeah. Something different about this. My mm -hmm. priorities is this and this, this is what I think the best scenario is. Uh, but I understand that, you know, it's not technically the flow chart. I think that's the right thing to say in this situation. Again, I'm, I'm not an examiner. I don't know, but I feel like this is one of those really tough situations. Um, yeah. That's the, that's the end of the vibe. Let's say the patients get, uh, the surgeons get control of the lesion and everything goes well. Um, how did you feel? <laughs> that was quite a tricky one. I think yeah. uh, every time, every time you get a, yeah, thoracic case uh, it could go in many ways. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, it was, yeah. I think I, I think you did really well. I feel like a lot of your frameworks are there. You've got you know the structures at, at hand. Um, just the one piece of information about the you know the flow chart for postoperative dyspnea prediction. Now, now you know that. Great. That's what the, these exams are about. You yeah. learn things as people examine you. You learn the nuances. So maybe even look at the British Thoracic Society or the American Thoracic Society guidelines for this for, th for, for thoracotomies, and maybe they'll the most updated things. And then finally, I think we just went through. Uh, yeah, the options for the airway was good. Your sizing was good. Advantages, disadvantages, fantastic. Yeah, you had a good sense of the analgesia that would provide. Um, and then I gave you a couple of different dilemmas. First, hypoxemia, which is normal hypoxemia and one lung ventilation hypoxemia. Always frame it in that and do all the usual things. You had a really succinct framework. I just added on, check the compliance, put the bag, auscultate the lungs, great ways to sort out uh, your problems. And finally, the one lung ventilation strategy. Oh, there's one other thing that uh, Slinger's article, Slinger is one of those, he's you know done so many papers on thoracic anesthesia and he talks about improving cardiac output as well. You really want to improve your VQ matching by making sure your cardiac output is good. So that's the one thing I would have added to that. Finally, yeah. rest we talked about at length. That was a very tricky arrest. And uh, just, uh, you know, this Viva is never straightforward. The examiners always make it slightly off off flowchart, slightly off 
the, whatever your normal, what you're normally trying yeah. to do. So I think thinking outside the box is one of the things that they really do test. Uh, but yeah, well done, Shayan. Thank you very much for, yeah, thank you very much for letting us examine you uh, live. Thanks, Larry. That was a very good experience. So thanks everyone, and especially thanks to Shehan for volunteering his time. Um, again, I'll post this on YouTube and, and our podcast ABCs of Anesthesia. And yeah, hopefully this is useful. Please share with anyone who might be interested. See you next time.